If we can't reopen our society in the next few weeks, when will we? Those of us who make these rules have got to stick by them, and that's why I've got to resign. We've seen chaos, confusion and cronyism at the heart of government. I fully understand the strength of feeling. Indeed, if it had been lawful, I'd have been there. I'd have been at a vigil. Hello and welcome to Politics at the Edge from the University of East Anglia. According to the United Nations, violence against women and girls has increased during the COVID-19 pandemic. Cases of domestic abuse have gone up and outside the home, violence against female health workers is also on the rise. Many women have reported an increase in harassment in public spaces, perhaps while out exercising. And with many in precarious employment, there's also an increased risk of sexual exploitation. The data is still being gathered. We don't have concrete numbers, but anecdotally, it's a worrying picture. So what's going on? Why is it happening? What can we do about it? On the podcast today, as always, Professor Alan Finlayson and with us, Dr. Helen Warner, Senior Lecturer in Gender at UEA, Aaron Grant, Head of Security here at the University and Alem Atakav, Professor of Film, Gender and Public Engagement. So let's talk about the scale of the problem first. Um, Aaron, how prevalent is the sexual violence in young people from the research that you've done? Um, I'd say it's increasing um, at a frightening rate. Um, so some statistics um, on the revolt sexual um, assault um, study with the student room. So they reached out across 153 um, higher education institutions within the UK and they had four and a half thousand student responses, of which 62% claimed that they had been a victim of sexual violence. Of those responders, 70% of those were female with 26 male. The ONS again worryingly, estimate that 4% of all females have experienced rape. And of that 4%, 8% said it was whilst they were studying at a UK university. So it appears that sexual assault reports have gone up over the last four years. And, and they've actually gone up by about 111%. And that looks like it continues to rise. Um, is that a case of we are seeing more? Are we having more people now? Coming, coming out and, and voicing, you know, what's happened to them. Have we got better reporting tools? I don't know, but it's certainly a trend going in the wrong direction. And Ellen, what's your research been showing you? So the research that I've done recently wasn't necessarily looking at domestic abuse survivors and victims, but it was looking at the domestic abuse sector's experience of the pandemic because they were dealing with quite a lot uh, during the particularly the first lockdown when they had to shut down services from face to face to to uh, to phone calls and we're looking at a 75% or so reduction in service delivery for the domestic abuse sector when the calls to helplines that they were receiving for instance for one charity karma nirvana uh, had gone up by 200% men's advice line from respect had gone up 100% around that time. So we really were looking or have been looking because the implications of the pandemic and, and domestic abuse in general are continuing uh, to this date as well. We're looking at a sector which has been dealing with uh, uh, essentially vicarious trauma by people bringing uh, people's uh, issues around domestic violence to their own home spaces, thereby, as one of the interviewees I've uh, spoken to for the film that uh, uh, we made, uh, says contaminating their homes in a way. 
Well, one of our reporters, Jasmine Oak, went out in Norwich to ask women if they feel safe uh, when they go out in the city around around here. To a certain extent, yeah. I'm very much used to walking around during the day now because I have my little boy usually. Anything sort of in the evening, no. Not so much as I don't have the same confidence I did when I was a teenager, for sure. In general, do I feel safe walking yeah. around? There's certain parts of Norwich I, I wouldn't walk after a certain time at night. A lot of um, dealings going on. I used to, but not so much anymore. Just because obviously what's been happening recently and like, I don't know, I just don't feel as safe as I used to. Yes, I do. I'm not really scared of people like in the streets and that around Norwich, no. As safe as I would anywhere, but I think we're talking about women's safety, aren't we? So I think being a woman, you're kind of sort of from a very young age, you know you're not safe. You just know you're not safe. You don't even think about it. So I kind of feel safe, but I'm on guard, you know. So those interviews were about perceptions of risk. And, and we talked to those women shortly after the Sarah Everard case. Helen, do you think it's to do with feeling safe is to do with what we experience or what we see on the news and on social media? Well, I think I was really struck by uh, the last comment um, of the interviewer where they talked about that, yes, they feel safe, but they recognise that they're a woman and from a very young age they've been taught not to feel safe um, and to always be on their guard. And I think that that's a really important point, that there's just an expectation that as a woman you are unsafe and that you need to take responsibility for that safety, even though you have no choice over where the harm is going to be perpetuated against you. Certainly, we're confronted with images of uh, violence being perpetuated against women across all media and popular culture, and that contributes to this general feeling of not being safe. In addition, I think we are socially conditioned to to accept a level of risk uh, for being a woman in society. One of the things that I do with my students, and I can't take credit for this because I saw it somewhere else, was that I ask uh, the students, those who identify as women or non-binary, what precautions do they take in order to keep themselves safe when they're outside? And they'll give me a list, you know, an an extremely long list of things that they'll do, like go to the toilet in pairs, put their their keys in between their fingers. And it it goes, there's there's hundreds, you know, keep their finger over um, over their bottle top so that uh, they don't get spiked and then I ask the the cis men in the room well what do you do and there's they do nothing and it's it, that is a really revealing exercise for thinking about the the how internalized those feelings of risk you know kind of are and the precautions that women women take and I think it's it's all of those reasons that you mentioned we are confronted with those images we see them all the time um, we're constantly told that it's women's responsibility to be safe uh even that you know we're talking about women's safety as opposed to violence against women or you know kind of male violence perpetuated against women and therefore we we make women responsible for their own safety when really they have absolutely no choice over over what may happen to them i think that's a really interesting important point that you raised there Helen if we made that shift from instead of talking about women's safety and structuring our policies and our plans all around how do we make women safe or feel safe and what should they do if we shifted it and thought well okay we've got a problem of perpetration of a certain kind of crime here how would that shift you think our sort of policy attitude both kind of nationally but also in the local context that we all live and work in university in our town in our lives i think that's a really important shift and obviously i'm not the first person to come up with this idea there's a there's a you know a rich feminist history of of talking about the importance of naming things and the importance of recognizing um men and masculinities 
uh, implication in this. But one of the things that's happened on uh, at our level, at a university level, is there's a problem not only with you know these crimes being committed, but also a problem with bystander syndrome, where people don't feel confident. If they see something happening, they don't feel confident to intervene. And often that's because it's normalized um, to such an extent that we accept this level of violence. We accept, you know, kind of that, that it may happen and that people will feel uncomfortable and that, you know, kind of lads being lads at university will will um, cross boundaries and therefore their friends don't, you know, kind of male friends don't feel the need to intervene. They don't feel the need to, um, yeah, to, to speak up. And that's a real problem. And there's been some real, really great work um, by Alison Phipps and Vanita Sunderham on universities and how they can tackle this. And, and bystander syndrome is one of the biggest things that they uh, identify. So is part, so from your point of view, is part of the issue here what people understand by male violence and what counts as a violent act? And is, so, it, so it's part of the challenge to kind of shift people's understanding of situations or events and seeing something as actually, this is beyond the pale, this is inappropriate, this is wrong, rather than thinking, oh, this is sort of a normal behavior or a thing we put up with or a thing that just happens. One crucial thing is recognizing that this happens on a continuum, that this, this violence doesn't just exist as, you know, one bad apple acting out and committing, you know, a crime against a woman. This is part of a bigger cultural issue where certain kinds of behaviors are normalized and accepted as just a general part of life. And this is where we get issues at university where certain kinds of behavior or banter or kind of lad culture normalizes you know kind of kinds of violence against women that leads to a gradual it leads to a dehumanizing of women and therefore violence becomes inevitable and so one of the issues that we really need to to address is recognizing that violence exists on a continuum that it can start as something as you know kind of inverted commas my as just shouting to someone to smile on the streets you know kind of feeling that you have that that ability to make someone feel unsafe in public and you know you remind women that actually no you're not supposed to be in this public space by shouting at them in the streets that is a, arguably and again inverted commas a kind of minor um act of violence but the fact that we normalize it and we legitimize it inevitably leads to it, it means that it escalates and we end up with with these kind of you know really horrific um attacks that we've been reading about recently i want to ask aaron how do you think things have changed over the decades that you've been in security and how are your staff having to adapt to this um and and this kind of behaviors which helen describes as being normalized which can sometimes escalate and to lead to other more criminal behavior no absolutely and i fully agree with what what helen um, was saying i'd also just like to expand you made a very valid comment that women are almost conditioned from a young age and taught maybe by their parents about how to be safer, when actually we should maybe be thinking about educating our sons from a young age as opposed to our daughters on what is acceptable behaviours. I'd like to give a small example. So my daughter, um, she was 12, um, so two years ago she was 12, she came to me and on her Instagram post a, uh, a male had approached her and He'd asked for sexual favours and then he'd sent some, um, some photographs of a, uh, of a nature which you know, no 12-year-old could see. She did the right thing um, and you know, she blocked and she screenshot and she reported it um, to myself and to her school. Made me think though, my 10-year-old son, so I then had that opportunity to sit with him and actually go through about acceptable behaviours and how it starts in social media. And I think that's a really good point because that education then continue, should continue through schools and universities. 
and that could help develop that peer pressure that you know it's not acceptable and to call out you know your male friends and the, the lad behavior and you know we need to get to a state where it's we self-police um, we, we do that peer policing unfortunately certainly from a university perspective we are seeing an increase in the drinking and the hookup culture um, the social media, the dating sites, we also look through the, the student social media sites and how they engage with each other. Um, I, I think it's fair to say there's sometimes there's a, they almost, there's a lack of respect between the, the you know, the female versus male and, uh, and it's almost like a lack of respect for themselves. Um, and then you get a lot of things like slut shaming and it perpetuates this, this laddish behaviour and it really, it really does. Um, so the security team, obviously, we're here at the front line. So we respond to, to anything on campus. And yes, we do respond to allegations of sexual assault, violence and, and rape. So, yes, it does happen. Um, and we're very sensitive to it. So we mentioned how do we deal with it on campuses. So I spoke to John Sharp. He's the director of student services at UEA on how they deal with allegations of sexual assault between students. Quite often students don't want to go to the police for a range of reasons. But we have still got an obligation as a university to look into a possible breach of our regulations. We have to be really careful that we don't frame that as the university investigating a sexual assault because it's the courts that make determinations about sexual assault. So we frame it in terms of our regulations. It's an investigation into possible sexual misconduct. And we have to balance the interest of the reporting student and make sure they feel really well supported. We can offer them counselling support, wellbeing support, as I said before, referral into external agencies who can support them but we do also have to explain to that student for their sake and as well as just in terms of the principle that this is tricky it is difficult to reach a conclusion and the conclusion will have to be based on the evidence that's available because if we adopted a model that said the accusation in itself is sufficient the inadvertent effect of that is that could allow people with unpleasant motives to exploit that. So it is horribly tricky. It's also really difficult for the individual about whom the report's been made. And in student services, our role is to support students. And so we will support both students with the issues that they're going through. So John Sharp there, the Director of Student Services, one of the things he talks about is when victim survivors don't want to go to the police and the rates of people reporting their sexual uh, violence to the police are still very low. Why do we think that hasn't changed? Why do we think that hasn't improved? If I may come in on that, um, judging on some other interviews that I had done with women who have gone through serious uh, uh, violence, mental and yeah, psychological and physical and so on and sexual violence. It's very hard for anyone to speak out because every time they speak out of their about their experiences, they're perhaps reliving those experiences. And uh, from a research perspective, from an academic perspective, it's uh, fraught with ethical issues, obviously doing research on these. But uh, so you get to see really clearly how traumatizing or re-traumatizing it is for, uh, for victims and survivors. Yet at the same time, it's empowering to speak out. And we're talking about an issue here that is um, particularly linked with the pandemic, as Aaron was saying, it's become doubly complicated, triply complicated, in fact. 
we can't be surprised, I think, at the, the few survivors who do feel able to go to the, the police about it because we've seen, we know what the statistics are in terms of prosecution rates for, for rape cases. So, you know, as Alam says, that's a huge amount of emotional labour. You know, it can be re-traumatising for possibly, you know, not the kind of justice outcome that you would you would uh, hope for. One thing that strikes me about John's comments is the the concern of false allegations when we know that the statistics for false allegations are so low. And significantly, there's been research done that show that of, you know, I think it's like 1%, something really, really minor, the number of, um, of false allegations there are. But we know that significantly the most false allegations are leveled towards uh, men of colour as well. And so we know that there's a racial element to this as well. And, and equally, we know... Uh, that there are certain kinds of women who, who, who are not supported by the justice system. We know that sex workers and women of colour have historically been abused at the hands of the state. So it, it doesn't surprise me at all that those numbers are, are so low. Just precisely on that, I was listening to uh, Jess Phillips talking about this, about non-disclosure agreements uh, at workplaces and on campuses, on university campuses. If there is no legal... So if, if, if women are completely abused and silenced legally and there's no legal system or a bill to back up and support these people men or women or girls or boys um, then obviously people will exactly as Helen's saying are not going to be tempted to come forward to talk about it I think the law and politics uh, policies need to work together as well as I mean it's all changes incredibly difficult for cultural values aren't they so that it takes time. And uh, but what can help with that is obviously media coverage together with the legal system, supporting it together with politics and different policies that will be put in place. If one of them and, and relevant and necessary resources that will be provided to services as well. Without one of those, it's not going to work or it's going to take a very long time. Do we need changes in the law? The Women's Equality Party are campaigning for affirmative consent in in rape cases. So at the moment, you need to prove a reasonable belief uh, in the woman's consent, but that's open to interpretation. And in Sweden, they brought in a law requiring affirmative consent because it's very different to say she said yes uh, or she didn't say no. So could you see that were helping to increase the number of convictions and the number of people who are willing to go through the criminal justice system. I guess in response to that, I would I would say that there needs to be a multi-pronged approach. I think that one avenue isn't going to solve this completely. Certainly, it seems to me for, as Alam suggested, kind of, you know, to initiate change on a cultural level, it does seem to me that there needs to be some kind of, you know, legal reform. However, an intersectional approach is what's really needed that recognises that the experience uh, for survivors is going to be different, that there are intersecting structures of oppression that make it harder for certain kinds of uh, survivors to come forward and that actually kind of the, the legal system as it stands just, just doesn't work for, for um, you know, for marginalised peoples. In addition, there's been some great work by Alison Fitz on sexual violence and the kind of Me Too movement, where she critiques, I guess, the, the the movement and how it evolved from a grassroots movement designed to support marginalised survivors and uh, girls and women from low-income uh, communities and communities of colour to a kind of mainstream white feminist 
approach to saying we just need better kind of legal, you, you know, we need legal reform that will make it easier to kind of pick out these bad apples and hold them to account, which, again, seems to ignore that cult, the, the bigger picture of how this doesn't happen in isolation. There's not just a few kind of, you know, dodgy blokes deciding that they're going to harm women. That does happen, but it's not it's certainly not the only um, not the only issue. And in actual fact, if we if we focus on these bad apples, we ignore the other kind of cultural conditions that that legitimize um, that legitimize other kinds of violence. And we and we let those other kind of we let other men and boys and perpetrators of violence off the hook because you know oh they're not as bad as that person. You know all they did was upskirt this person. All they did was you know grab their waist when they move past them. That kind of stuff that that, that feels very small, but in actual fact legitimizes all kinds of violence against women. Is this is this where we maybe sort of come back to where we started in terms of talking about women's safety? And, and you made the kind of entirely correct point that we want to not just think about women's safety, but about those who are creating situations in which people are under threat or feel under threat. It seems to me, it seems to be the part of what you're saying there is that actually we, well, on the one hand, we want to think about how certain kinds of normalized behaviors make possible all kinds of criminal activity. Mm. Actually, those behaviours in themselves just are a problem in themselves, mm. precisely because they make people feel unsafe. And sometimes people sort of say, oh, well, feeling unsafe, oh, well, everyone goes on about wanting safe spaces, blah, blah, blah. But actually, that's wrong. People should not feel unsafe walking around the university in their classes, just going about their normal lives. And not just because that might put them under threat of even worse behaviours, but because that behaviour itself just creates an environment that is not a good one for people to be in. Uh, and that's, the, that's this larger issue, isn't it? We, we want to tackle domestic violence, we want to tackle sexual assault, we also want to tackle a wider range of behaviours that are just creating a situation that is unacceptable for a learning institution, for sure, but for society at large, it seems to me. Yeah, absolutely. No, I would 100% agree, agree with that. And it, it's, and you're absolutely right. You know, we're, there seems to be this huge push of, oh, we, we would really like equality and we would like women's we would like women to be represented at all levels of, you know, public life. And yet we aren't doing enough to tackle these really, you know, these really important issues where simply by somebody passing judgment, you know, kind of or saying something about the length of someone's skirt in a classroom is going to make that person feel unsafe and feel not welcome. And that's the crucial thing, I think, is that we need to make these spaces, you, you know, the, the debate about safe spaces, um, in inverted commas, it's really about, we're talking about hostile environments, we're talking about people not feeling able to fully participate in public life because they're going to be treated in a particular way and made to feel that they are not welcome and that they shouldn't be participating in, in public life in, in full. It's the same as when we say, you know, well, you, she shouldn't have been out at night, you know, well, why not? You know, she should be absolutely allowed to, to be a citizen in the world. Equally, when we say, when we talk about violence online, that person could just come off Twitter and then be removed from all the other discourse and debate that they could be engaged in. You know, it's really about making sure that everybody feels safe to participate in public life and be, you know, be a full citizen. This kind of cultural shift takes years, though, doesn't it? Years, decades. I mean, when I happen to be flicking through the channels and I come across a Carry On film, I cannot believe that that um, was broadcast, published, is still broadcast, those kinds of attitudes towards women. So these shifts in how we think about one another and how we talk to one another, they take a long time to change, don't they? 
They do, but I think that, that in that context, there's a very interesting question about this position of sort of leaders in society, cultural figures, political figures, how they talk about these issues and how they set kind of a tone. I wonder, Alem, can you tell us a bit more of what you've been thinking about in relation to politicians and the political discourse around this? I don't think we can divorce this from this topic from political discourses, because yes, at cultural level, exactly what you're saying, Alan and Helen, and Aaron, everyone has said it, um, exactly as you're saying, you know, yes, there are cultural issues that will change, change takes time, but politically speaking, we can't really, it's no coincidence that we started this point, uh, podcast with quotes from politicians as well. Uh, I know we're talking about the UK, but my example will come from Turkey, for example, um, in this case, when the president of Turkey announces quite publicly that women should not be laughing out loud in public, it shouldn't be allowed, however, it's going to be curtailed, uh, they shouldn't be going out and walking in the streets alone after 1am, those restrictions end up having direct impact on how people behave. And you can see that direct impact in the number of uh, violent cases, particularly honour killings against women and gay men in Turkey, how they've risen over the past decade, um, and more so in the last few years as well. And the I was looking forward to um, some really promising points from uh, the, the latest UK government strategy for tackling violence against women and girls. And I really was looking forward to seeing some real change in there. And although it is quite welcome, it still does not go far enough to cover sexual harassment, public sexual harassment. And we do really uh, uh, need a bill uh, that covers all of that. We, need, we do need the legal system to work, but also at political level uh, support from the government. But again, I was thinking, you know, the way in which Boris Johnson himself uh, was talking about Muslim women in this country, referring to them as, you know, the veiled women as post boxes, for example, and turning them into objects essentially even that discourse is quite violent and if we are starting with minimal things like that how do women sh should feel about how should they feel about themselves and how should women or womanhood be talked about at political levels or in the media as well the uh, current government uh, does not properly resource uh services that need to support that are needed to support women and girls who are in need and also men and boys as well who are in need uh, in this case we do definitely need a legal uh, kind of a bill essentially uh, particularly for this really widespread issue on sexual harassment and abuse particularly on uk university campuses what, what, Aaron, would you like to see change on university campuses to make, um, well, so that we get fewer of these incidents in the future, really? No, it's, it's, it's a really interesting in question um, because obviously we've got, we've got the learning side and students want to come to us, um, you know, to study. But at the same time, they want that experience, uh, that university experience, that going out, meeting new people, so we, we see it for every year in September when we have our new first years. It's always an exciting time for the security department, of course. Um, so we have, you know, we have thousands of 18, 19 year olds come there. We know that they've just, a lot of them have, you know, they've lived at home. They're out of their, their safe bubble, their home bubble. Uh, and obviously they're thrown into the mix with uh, 
uh, quite often strangers and they have to find their feet. Some take to it a lot quicker than others and the, the laddish culture can definitely develop. Now, the pandemic has created a situation where last year our students, our first years, did not experience a normal university life. So it could be seen that this year, come September, that we've got two sets of freshers again. So we'll have the incoming first years. We'll also have the second years that are going to want to be here to experience what normality should look like. Um, and I, I, I personally believe that as a university, we've got a responsibility to we, edu we should educate right from from the outset about what is acceptable, how to how to report. Let's if we know about things happening, let's let's deal with it there and then, as opposed to waiting further down the line and get escalated. Because we know violence does escalate. It can start off with social media, name calling, and and like you say, the next thing you know, violence will will, will always escalate. So we need to nip that in the book, but we have to educate more about the calling out man on man. So um, so I attended, we had the Sarah Everard vigil here at the university. And again, we were approached, we couldn't authorise it because of the COVID, but we we said we'd much rather it goes ahead than we can, we can assist you and manage it. It was attended by over 300 students um, and a succession of speakers. That was the most interesting three hours of, of my year listening to the experiences of, of our female students, of what they've gone through, not just here on campus, but at home uh, as they as they as they grown up as children, by um, work colleagues, by family, friends, the abuse, the violence perpetrated towards them as quite honestly, it was it was horrifying. What was good is that a lot of the students found it quite cathartic to speak openly with their peers with other women that had been had gone through similar things um and yeah it was it was it was it was really good to see that and i only wait i think if more men had witnessed that and actually heard first-hand accounts um then that would make them think because it certainly made me think and um you know i thought it was a really good event helen and Aylan, we've talked about various things that we think could be done should be done what else would you like to see to make the situation better there's a unique set of circumstances that happen when somebody goes away to university. But, you know, as Aaron's uh, example already, you know, his personal example already demonstrated this happens so much earlier than, you know, we can anticipate. This is happening in schools. Schools aren't safe environments for young girls at all. You know, by the time they get to university, it won't be their first experience of, of, of a, a kind of violence. It will have happened at school. And I think until we recognise the extent of the problem and as as Aaron said you know kind of see these as opportunities to engage boys and men in the discussion about how their behavior can be harmful and you know encourage a a culture where men and boys feel able to not call out but perhaps call in behavior when when they're able to recognize it and acknowledge it and, and, and start a conversation about it that seems crucial because I think there are certain things that, that can happen at university level I think there are certain things that need to happen in terms of disciplinary you know kind of our disciplinary procedures one of the things that struck me um survivor centered uh so that there isn't a huge burden of, of proof on on survivors and I think that there is a false equivalence between reports and false allegations that I, I don't think those numbers are anywhere near um comparable and so I think our focus really does need to be 
survivor focus but this needs to happen very early on this needs to happen in schools as well Aylan what would you like to see change not just at university but in the wider world I just want to raise two issues one of them uh, is about we've talked about prevention we talked about resources or their lack of uh, and uh, one of the figures that is, that is quite alarming and this was from 2019 uh, there were about 5,000 women who were turned away from a refuge due to lack of space when they needed help most. Equally, migrant women are not included in the domestic abuse bill as it currently stands. So we do ask for their passport, what passport they hold before we do help them, or we can help them um, when domestic abuse services in particular can help them. So that's one issue that I want to kind of um, uh, leave here. But the other one, uh, and definitely for, for further um, podcast for sure but the other issue is we're talking about yeah we've covered campus uh, campus violence and so on but beyond that there are other levels of violence like forced marriage like fgm like honor kill so-called honor killings and these things do not just happen elsewhere in the world they happen very much so in the uk and it's only really recently to the point of two weeks ago when for instance um uh, FGM has been uh, brought into policy and it's banned and so on. So we really need to uh, work with and as universities, as academics, as scholars, we are responsible in working with those communities, I think, to provide the research that is needed, to provide the evidence that is needed so that policies can change, so that our work can be impactful, can actually be a drop in the ocean because change is, as we said, really slow, but it, it can happen. It is happening every day. Now, it's been a really interesting discussion, I think really helpful as well. We've touched over such a load of issues from the personal, the local and the university based to the regional and the national and so forth. But I think that for me, the kind of theme that comes out is how important it is to pay attention to people, to hear what it is they're saying, to kind of learn from, from what they're telling you and be, be on the one hand, pleased that we can hear people and can listen to them and perhaps we didn't always do so but also conscious that what we're hearing is uh, as Aaron and Helen of Aylam said giving us some things we've got to do uh, to try and make things better. All right that's all for now the reporter today was Jasmine Oak thank you to our guests Helen Warner, Aaron Grant, Aylam Atikov and thanks to the BBC, Sky, Guardian and ITN for our news clips and thank you of course for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>